right now it's so cozy like i'm in my cute little apartment and it's snowing outside and we're recording a podcast uh, and it's just and we're about to talk about russian literature and it's just so cute cute that is very cute that's perfect Mm, all right well should we do a thing maybe yeah let's do 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 you feel ready to do a thing no. 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 Okay, we're doing like the mimicking thing again. <laughs> we are, we are, we are. <laughs> Listen then, said Tomsky, you must know that about 60 years ago my grandmother went to Paris, where she made something of a hit. At that time ladies used to play pharaoh. On one occasion at the court my grandmother lost a very great deal of money on credit to the Duke of Orléans. She went to Versailles, au jus de la reine. The Duke of Orléans kept the bank, my grandmother began to play against him. She chose three cards and played them one after another. All three won, and my grandmother recouped herself completely. Pure luck, said one of the guests. A fairy tale, observed Herman. Perhaps the cards were marked, said a third. I don't think so, Tomsky replied gravely. What? cried Narumov. You have a grandmother who can guess three cards in succession, and you haven't yet contrived to learn her secret. Hello, everyone. This is the podcast Credo Kia Absurdum, the podcast that analyzes texts and other pieces of media, both from contemporary times and from antiquity. And today, ba ba da da I don't know why I just did the drum roll. It's fine. Oh, <laughs> oh, that, that was new. I surprised myself. But today we're going to be focusing on Alexander Pushkin's uh, The Queen of Spades, the short story from 1933. So slip into your coattails, and if you don't have a mustache, then draw one on. And join us in the billiards room. Late into the night, we'll sip on Sazeracs amidst the wafting, pungent perfume of cigar smoke. And remember, in any bet, there is a fool, and there is also a thief. Alexander Pushkin was a poet, a playwright, and a novelist in the early 1800s. He's heralded as one of the best Russian poets in history and also a pioneer in modern Russian literature. So he was born into Russian nobility in Moscow on May 26, 1799, and he died 37 years later on January 29th in 1837. So you're, I know, I, he was only 37 years old. Yeah, he was old? only 37. He was pretty young. <gasps> I didn't know. He that. died in a duel. How did he die? In a duel. In a duel. 
Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, as um, they all did, really. Sorry, um, getting a hold. Yeah. Just dropping, dropping like flies. For context, 1799 to 1837 was, a, you know, the Russian Empire was like alive and well and thriving. So a lot of his work was influenced by this high Russian society. And he lived his early life in relative luxury. He was highly educated and he published his first works when he was only 15 years old. He later attended like elite upper education near St. Petersburg, where he was almost immediately recognized for his literary talent. And he spent a lot of his time in his early career around St. Petersburg. However, when he was about 20 years old, he became really interested in French Enlightenment and the literature that came out of French Enlightenment um, and also social reform and revolution, ultimately. And this, which you can really see the influences of that in this. Story. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so he became somewhat of a spokesperson for the Party for Radical Reform and the literary community in Radical Reform, which the authorities of the time were like not too hot on. They were like, mm, this is kind of like you know questioning the status quo, and he he was calling for like wealth distribution, and they were like, mm, we don't like that so much. Um, mm, no, no, thank no, you. No, thank you. We like money. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so this led to his exile, but I'm not sure exactly what exile meant to Russian government at the time because it seemed to be a pretty soft exile because he moved around for the rest of his life but he moved in and out of government approval and subsequently in and out of high Russian society it seemed oh. like he he would go off for a while and then he would come back and he would party a little bit in Moscow and then you oh know get God. a little radical and then they would be like oh no don't do that and then he would leave again don't do that <laughs> no kidding I I actually don't I never really knew anything about Pushkin. Oh yeah. So this is all interesting <laughs> news to me. Okay, yeah. So he died in a duel with a man he suspected was having an affair with his wife. So she was sixteen years old when they were first introduced and she was very beloved by a high society in St. Petersburg. She was really popular and sort of inner inner circle, like inner elite circle of the czar. And so Pushkin Ooh. like courted her um, and eventually she was like, okay, I'll marry this guy. But first she went to the government or her personal friend, the czar, and was like, I would, I would prefer if my future husband were not persecuted by the government after I marry him. And they were like, that seems fair. Okay. Because I guess... You're so pretty. You're so pretty. Okay, You're so nice. I guess so. Okay. okay. And <laughs> so he was not. But then... So I... Okay, I do not understand how, like, Russian Empire court life worked. But it seems from what I've read that to fully and properly participate in all of the elite you know balls and social events you have to have a actual like position in court so you had to be a member you need to have a title and so when pushkin married natalia there were lots of titles tons, tons of, of titles, titles tons of titles yep. yeah so when pushkin married natalia he was given a title but apparently it was like the lowest title he possibly could get and he was all pissy about this he was like how dare you you all you want is to just keep hanging out with natalia and you don't even care about me and this is a 
humiliation. And the czar was like, yeah, like that's all I want is to keep hanging out with Natalia. Uh, you are correct. And, and anyway, so that was just kind of cute. But segue into the story was that he wrote this after his marriage to Natalia. He was deeply embedded in the St. Petersburg social life at the time. And that is very clear in this story. You know, definitely themes of the Russian Empire, high society, lavishment, balls, um, and then also his critique of greed and avarice and opulence. And themes of French influence. Yes, yes. As well. Um, Well, he was educated in French. He basically spent the first whole part of his life exclusively speaking French. And then he only learned the Russian languages through the staff in his household. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, So The Queen of Spades, our text for today, was written in 1833 and was first published in 1834. Uh, it, it was the inspiration for many follow-up pieces, including, of course, the opera, The Queen of Spades by the Tchaikovsky brothers. So after he had re-entered high Russian society, you can also see in the text that many of his characters were either influenced by trends that he saw or literally based off of very specific people. Mm. Um, so the countess in this is based off of... Natalia Petronova Golitsna, which I'm probably not pronouncing that right, right, but she was a, you know, a very avid socialite and a, a powerful personality in court at the time. Uh, and then also you will see, we'll talk about themes of like the fantastic and the supernatural because uh, Pushkin was a big pioneer in these areas as well. And that just sort of seems to be kind of a, an ongoing theme, doesn't it? We, we we seem to be doing a lot of the fantastic. Yeah, well, this, this story follows so well from the Sandman. Yeah. Like, you can see so many of, the, of similar elements, like the dual storylines of, like, kind of a love story with some story of, of like, male obsession. Yes, yes. Uh, that ends in madness. Oh, my gosh. Wow. <laughs> Duh! I I I hadn't I, I had not actually thought of that yet. But <laughs> Herman and and Nathaniel are super similar. Nevertheless, it's it they are two different yes. stories that have great depth, both of them into sort of like different areas of the psyche. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, totally. I have lots to say about this, but I'll let you do maybe a bit of background for us. Yeah. So to preface this, as you were saying, like there's this influence of of France and Paris in this story, and it's personified in the character of this old countess who basically came up as this beautiful, foxy <laughs> lady in Paris. She's Russian. She's like, you know, in Paris, she's gambling. She's lording over her husband. And she is representative of like the height of the aristocracy in Europe and in Paris in the 1770s. This is when like Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette were king and queen of France and Catherine the Great was the empress. And so so this is like before the French Revolution. Mm-hmm. Then we have the French Revolution all the aristocracy is getting like beheaded and overthrown and stuff. It's great. It's cool. Love it. 
The Scarlet um, Pimpernel, our favorite movie. Scarlet <laughs> Pimpernel. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Although that is certainly not on the I know, side I was about to say, like, the... that is pro aristocracy all the way. It's kind of pro It's definitely anti. Um, they, like, try to give a nod to the revolution where they're like, the ideals were pure in the beginning. All right, we're getting, I, w- I would. I, yeah, we're getting I a would little love off to topic, do a, but. I would love to do a full episode on the Scarlet Pimpernel at some point. We need to dedicate at least Someday. 30 minutes yeah. to his outfits, but another time. Yes. Oh, my another God. Time. That, but, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's just this this incredibly, like, lavish, opulent time. And the, then came the French Revolution, and then later Napoleon, who has come up into power through mm-hmm. the French Revolution, comes into power. And this old order is overthrown, and a new age has dawned and so you have the countess representing this old order that is still nevertheless sort of like has this opulent but archaic influence on the story and i think i want to like bring in over the course of this like a little bit about napoleon because there's so much of pushkin telling us that Herman, the main character, has Napoleonic qualities. Yes. So to get into like the plot of the story is the story of this German man named Herman who is living in Russia and he's an officer in the Russian Imperial Army. He's an engineer. And though he's intensely ambitious, he's also very, very cautious. And he refuses to gamble or play cards, even though he's obsessed (laughs) with the idea of gambling and very, very attracted to it. He just can't bring himself to take the risk of actually playing and potentially losing any money. And we open up the story with this card party that one of his friends is holding. And one of his other friends, Tomsky, tells the group this story about his grandmother, the Countess Fedotovna, who was this beautiful hothead in Paris in the 1770s when she was young, who's gambling excessively and gets into a huge debt, and her husband refuses to pay. And so she, you know, she's like trying to figure out what to do, and she goes to help from a, a friend of hers who is this kind of mystical yeah. character in the like kind of French gambling scene named Count Saint-Germain who doesn't give her money but instead reveals a kind of magical secret to winning at cards which is to play three specific cards in a sequence and the countess uses this method to pay off her debts but she never gambles again which of course her her grandson Tomsky is like oh my god I could I don't even get it how <laughs> How could you never gamble again? When you know the secret. Um, so she only reveals the secret of the three cards to one man who at first finds success from it, but then, yes. you know, it's sort of alluded to the fact that he maybe abused the gift and he ends up dying in poverty. And Herman initially, like, scoffs at this story. He calls it a fairy tale, and he's like, oh, whatever, I don't gamble. But then he's <laughs> sort of inexorably drawn in by it and he finds himself at the house of the countess and he and he sees her ward who's this beautiful young woman Lizaveta in the window and he's drawn in and decides to discover the secret of the cards and this sets him off on his path uh toward his eventual ruin it's not that eventual it's like 
it's like two pages <laughs> it's, it's a short story <laughs> and then it's like yeah no, he's fine he's, yeah okay, okay. <laughs> yeah yep. um and so the story follows both Herman, but also the story of Lizaveta, the ward, yeah. which is kind of more of a love story. Uh, but the, I mean, it's the same story, but it's two sort of sides. Yeah, right? we'll talk about it. I there are so many parts of this story that I really enjoyed, Gosh. and I I am waiting patiently to start talking about them. <laughs> come in, you want to come in? No. Alright, Luca's just gonna, I guess, make a cameo in all of our. I know. All He's of our just podcasts. gonna. My good sir. Did you just <laughs> hand him your <laughs> microphone? <laughs> yes. You come up here. Come here, Luca. <gasps> no. Oh, I heard it. Oh. Welcome, Luca. Yes. Hey, Luca. Say hello. <laughs> I wonder if you could hear his purr. Anyway. Anyway, so like Anna Jane said, this does have all these themes of the fantastic and the uncanny, and we can kind of follow them through the story. And I think it is actually in this story a very useful analysis tool. So that's one thing that I want to keep in mind. Uh, another is, which is connected to that, is that you again have this love story and the story of the cards, or like the story of Herman's ambition and. I just I'm so interested to try to understand why these are so yes. close to each other. Why are they so inextricable? And then again, just like in I think just very quite similarly to uh, the Sandman, there's this element of humor yes. in this story. It's very funny, and it's clearly making fun of a bunch of tropes and sort of the silliness of society. Yes. And it's kind of a parody. And it's also kind of a parody of a ghost story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and possibly even more so. I mean, definitely, I would say, actually, even more so than The Sandman. Because The Sandman, if we wanted to do a little compare and contrast, a little quick one. You know, it is actually quite creepy. It has, like, freaky elements to it. Whereas this one, nothing about it is really scary. It's compelling and intriguing. It's mostly... At least... Not at Not first at glance. glance. <laughs> thank, thank you. Very okay. Good. <laughs> foreshadowing. 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 Um, foreshadowing. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, anyways, yes, yes, yes. So, Keep those in mind. Keep them in mind. Uh, let me get my papers ready. A little ASMR for you. Okay, anyway. <laughs> A dramatic flourish. All right, so let's get into the events of the story. So we open with this card party hosted by a character called Narumov, who is a cavalry officer. And after the games, the other players and everyone kind of, they rib Herman for being such a stickler and for refusing to play cards, but being obsessed with watching. And then Tomsky shares the story of his grandmother and the three cards, which prompts uh, curiosity from his listeners <laughs> and I mean the first thing that comes to mind is just how how like vivid and almost like cinematic this story is yes. right from the get-go like you have this description Tomsky just launches into this story mm-hmm. about his grandmother that is just paints such this picture of late 1700s yeah yeah of this really strong-willed young woman who's just having a good time 
Yeah, they call her La Venue Moscovite, <laughs> which means the Moscow Venus. Venus. I know. <laughs> and uh, it says, Richelieu paid court to her, and my grandmother vouches that he almost shot himself on account of her cruelty. <laughs> at that time, ladies used to play pharaoh, and at one point, she loses a lot of money, and returning home, she tells her husband about it, and... And he has this, Tomsky yes. says, my late grandfather, as far as I can remember, was a sort of lackey to my grandmother. <laughs> he feared her like fire. On hearing such a disgraceful loss, however, he completely lost his temper. So, like, I just know that. that, but that was, he feared that, her like fire. That was literally the line that I wanted to bring up. <laughs> it was like this yes. little man who's just, like, running around to serve his, like, beautiful and vivacious beautiful wife. wife. <laughs> yeah. And he, like, adores and fears her <laughs> yes but he literally is like i i we, I, we can't we can't pay. there's no money we can't do it there's no way and she's like oh okay fine. i know and then she like and leaves him she's like i'm gonna go sleep on my own like as an indication yeah, right. of my oh, displeasure yeah. with you and and then he's still <laughs> like we do not have the money like <laughs> And she goes off to this Count St. Germain, who apparently is this just marvelous individual who has held himself out to be the inventor of the elixir of life, the philosopher's stone, and so forth. Some ridiculed him as a charlatan, and in his memoirs, Casanova declares that he was a spy. So he's just like surrounded by mystery and the grandmother goes to him and he's you know gives her the secret of the cards yeah and then i and then she just keeps that secret to herself for the rest of her life and it's kind of this thing that like her four sons have tried to get out of her because they are all gamblers tomsky himself her grandson is a gambler and yeah and so you have these kind of the reactions of tomsky's friends and herman is like Oh, it's it's a fairy tale, of course, because he's so above it all. And Narumov says, What? You have a grandmother who can guess three cards in succession, and yet you haven't contrived to learn her secret. And he's, Tomsky says, There's no way you can learn the secret. And so, yeah, that kicks us off into the rest of the story. Yeah. So, I mean, like, maybe if we could just linger a little bit on the Count of St. Germain. Uh, because he clearly has like allusions to alchemy as well elixir of life the philosopher's stone so another you know pretty clear connection to the sandman of the character of coppola that's true i didn't even think yeah but i do like it you know it's just another one of these like really vivid characters that just makes this little cameo and i think that you know, you have mm-hmm. to remember that like Pushkin was super influential in Russian literature and modern Russian literature, and uh, I think that this character of the mystic was a romanticized trope that made its way into a lot of a lot of future pieces. Like I think that you know, like he reminds me also of Rasputin. Yeah, right. And the that's the true. sort of frenemy of the mystical man, Rasputin right, right. the frenemy. And you don't know. <laughs> Uh, right but i mean in the sense that you don't know if he's going to lead you to to success or ruin 
All right, so moving on, Pushkin adds also in these little uh, little epigraphs, which is he adds them to the beginning of each chapter, each sort oh, yeah. of very short little chapter, and it's just a quotation that sort of is supposed to establish a mood or a theme. But his epigraphs are kind of funny because I I think he's made up most of them. Mm-hmm. They're not from any kind of work of art or anything. Like this first one is this little French epigraph and and it's just credited as fashionable conversation. <laughs> like and so it's in French but the translation is it seems monsieur that you are decidedly for the ladies maids. And then his response is of course madame for they are fresher. <laughs> Which Okay. Oh, okay. okay. That brings us into chapter two, in which we go to the old countess and her lady's maid or her ward, Lizaveta. So we're in the home of the countess, and Tomsky arrives, and they talk about a ball. And so we we hear that basically Tomsky wants to introduce the countess to a friend of his, and Lizaveta asks, "Oh, it." Who who are you? Who do you want to introduce? Tomsky says Naramov, who was the host of the party, and uh, he says, "Do you know him?" She says, "No." Is he a soldier? Uh, is he an engineer? And he says, "No, he's in the cavalry." What made you think he was an engineer? <laughs> so this gives us a little tip off. So Herman yeah. is somehow that he's, he's already somehow gotten involved yes. here. And yeah, so we kind of get this sense of the characters of Lizaveta and Tomsky and the Countess, where Tomsky seems to be this kind of, I mean, we already have a sense of him being this kind of like very laid back, very upper class young man who's kind of floating around the balls and he likes flirting, t- gambling, and he's just kind of having a yeah, great time he, in he life. He lives for um, pleasure. You know, he doesn't yeah. have any struggles. Yeah, he lives entirely for pleasure. <laughs> right. No, no struggles. struggles. He's fine. Yeah, the countess is now this old woman. She's kind of, uh, it says she no longer had the slightest pretensions to beauty, which had long since faded from her face, but she still preserved all the habits of her youth, paid strict regard to the fashions of the 70s, devoted to her dress the same time and attention as she had done 60 years before. So she's already painted as this person who's very much living in the past. She's a little bit out of it. She's kind of like makes a lot of mistakes, but she's like with her she mistakes who people are and etc but she's still a very demanding woman evidently because she likes to tell Lizaveta what to do quite a lot yeah and there's this very humorous exchange about this carriage that the, the countess keeps telling Lizaveta to call the carriage and then she's like well where are you going you're not dressed and Lizaveta is like okay well I get get dressed she gets dressed and then the countess is like well where's the carriage now did you call for the carriage and Lizaveta is like no I, I'll do it now <laughs> I had to go get dressed you told me to get dressed where's the carriage why aren't you dressed yet I'm always waiting on you <laughs> <laughs> and then finally they like they have the carriage Lizaveta's dressed and the countess is like well actually it looks very cold outside. Is it very cold? It looks like there's a draft. Like, we can't go can't outside. Go we can't go for a drive with that. Why are you even dressed? Go get undressed. What are you even dressed for? And it just perfectly... And then the scene kind of ends with, with Lisaveta thinking, and this is my life, which just... 
some relatable content there. Yeah, so then we get a little bit more about like the Countess being this this kind of very funny character mm-hmm. in society. It says, she took part in all the vanities of the haute monde. She dragged herself to balls where she sat in a corner, rouged and dressed in old-fashioned style like some misshapen but essential ornament of the ballroom. And people just kind of go and, like, talk to her, like, you know, pay their respects, and then they forget about her, and then she, you know, goes off back home. And so that that's a good... I like I, this characterization yes. of the countess is just it's very vivid you can really imagine this kind of old woman who's just drenched in her finery just going through the motions yes well and it's also i mean it's also a way to characterize both of them right lisabetta and the old countess because in like describing the lethargy of the household right like how out of date and like you know sort of weighed down they are in the meantime, Lisa Vetta is like running around and trying to do right. all of the chores and all of the things that other people aren't, you know, aren't picking up. And she's also victimized for it. So everything that goes wrong in the household is also her fault. Right, right. Oh, and so basically, this is actually a trope of Russian literature. So in Karamzin, who was the kind of the precursor to Pushkin as like the yeah the know, pioneers of, the Russian, mm-hmm. of Russian literature, poor Lisa is the story of a village girl who commits suicide after a tragic love affair where basically the the love interest decides to marry a rich woman he chooses wealth over love and that's obviously very relevant to this story and and when you see a character in russian literature whose name is lisa it generally means that she will not meet a happy fate um, and that she's poor lisa poor poor lisa and that she's Uh, So then we hear about how Lizaveta has been seeing a young engineer out her window in this very weird interaction where he just stands there staring at her. And at first she's kind of like... Freaked out. She's freaked out. She's like... She is actively freaked out. It says, She saw him again. He was standing just by the front door, his face concealed by a beaver collar. His dark eyes shone from beneath his cap. Without knowing why, Lizaveta Ivanovna felt afraid, and an unaccountable trembling came over her. But even though she starts off as being afraid, she kind of starts to warm up to him, even though they yeah. haven't spoken at all to each other. And she says she she sees him, you know, outside of her window a lot. And when she look makes eye contact with him, he sort of a flush spreads across his pale cheeks every time their glances meet. And yeah, so so this hence her little question to Tomsky ab- yes. about whether the this guy is from the engineers um, what I was really startled by in this story is how you know dense this characterization is right because even though Lisa is afraid at first it also kind of makes sense that she's interested in the attentions from an officer because it's already been established that since she's sort of a poor relation to the countess people even though she's really beautiful people don't really pay her any attention at the balls they see right. 
right. her. They're kind of using her to make the rich ladies jealous. Yes, and stuff. exactly. And but other than that, you know, she's pretty much just as ignored by the populace as the old countess is. Right. Yeah. So now we come back to Herman, Herman's point of view. So we learn that he is the son of a Russified German. And this is kind of a, an interesting point because he's both like part of this society, but also kind of outside of it. Like he's not he's not totally Russian. He's not totally German. Uh, this places him in sort of a similar liminal space to like Lizaveta and to the Countess. Like both are people who are like the Countess is stuck between different two different times. Lizaveta is stuck between two different classes. Yeah. Herman is stuck between sort of Russian and German mentalities. Mm-hmm. Which is just so recollective of like the uncanny too, right? That like an in-between space, a familiar, not familiar. Right, right. Uh, and so it says, he was secretive and ambitious and his companions rarely had occasion to laugh at his excessive thrift. He had strong passions and a fiery imagination, but his tenacity of spirit saved him from the usual errors of youth. Thus, for example, although he, at heart a gambler, he never took a card in his hand, for he reckoned that his position did not allow him to sacrifice the essentials of life in the hope of acquiring the luxuries. Yes. Uh, meanwhile, he would sit up at the card table for whole nights at a time and follow the different turns of the game with feverish anxiety (laughs) when he says that herman has a fiery imagination like not not over exaggeration that that's like once you get like herman's you know inner monologue you're like whoa this guy this guy's out there this guy is intense so I love this sequence where he, it says the, the cards made this strong impression on his imagination. And he's thinking all these things of like, what if the countess would reveal herself to her secret to me? And he's like, why not try my luck? What, what if she told me? What, perhaps I could become her <laughs> no. lover by all that demands time. She's 87. She might die in a week, in two days. <laughs> I know. And, but even as he's saying that to himself, he, he convinces himself out of it. And he's like, no, economy, moderation, <laughs> and industry. These are my three winning cards. <laughs> and uh, and then it just goes on to reasoning thus he found himself like wandering sort of wandering the streets of Petersburg I guess he's thinking this to himself and, and talking himself completely out of you know engaging with this and then he finds himself before a house of old fashioned architecture and he asks someone who who is that house and they're like oh it's the countess that's the <laughs> And he sees Elisabetta, uh, I think he sees her coming out of the house, and then later he goes back to the house because he's just so drawn to it. He's having dreams of riches, and he again finds himself outside, and he looks up at the window and sees Elisabetta in the window, and it says... At one, he saw a head with long black hair, probably bent down over a book or a piece of work. The head was raised. Herman saw a small, fresh face and a pair of dark eyes. That moment decided his fate. Yeah, I, he's just all over the place. Yeah. He's like, he's so clearly like, so controlled and driven. And then 
once his imaginative forces have any type of leeway, any way to push him forward, they just, they just come in. <laughs> they and- take over. Yeah, I just, I love his inner monologue where he's like, can I seduce the countess? Like, with <laughs> I need to know that secret so bad. (laughs) And then his reasoning for not seducing the Countess isn't, oh, I shouldn't do that. It's, oh, but she's so old. Like, and she might die any time. So that's just not a sustainable solution. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Become introduced to her. Try to win her favor. Perhaps become her lover. Dot, 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 question mark. My point, I think, with his inner monologue is that it immediately shows that he's not preoccupied with moral motivation. You know, his reasoning isn't that uh, he shouldn't manipulate an old woman. His reasoning (laughs) is that it's not a good solution, that it wouldn't actually work. (laughs) It's just not logical. It's just not logical. There's just not enough time, you know? No. (laughs) Okay, so now we're on to the third chapter here. So now we're all caught up. We know Mm -hmm. kind of what's going on in all these characters' heads. And we have chapter three, the epigraph of which is also, is again in French. And it translates to, my angel, you write me four page letters so fast that I'm unable to read them. Which is why I feel like it's the quality of like every epigraph that it starts off being this sort of like somehow it's like romantic or mysterious and then it subverts right into something just like like low humor. It's great. I don't know. (laughs) So we're back with Lizaveta and and we see more of her being sort of uh, abused by the countess. Great. The countess great. being like, are you in a trance or something? Don't you hear me or understand what I'm saying? And we find out that Lizaveta has been receiving some love letters from Herman. Lizaveta receives a love letter from the young the young man who we know Herman. now Herman. is Herman. 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 And it says. Uh, she read it through the letter contained a confession of love it was tender i can't ever say love in most circumstances it was tender respectful and taken word for word from a german novel but lisaveta ivanovna had no knowledge of german and was most pleased by it so (laughs) this is funny i think it's funny but it also shows that lisaveta ivanovna is firmly on the side of like the sort of russified version of Herman. Right. And where like where his his German side is situated as the controlled side. You know, the one that's locked down, the one that wanted to seduce the countess and but didn't because it had a, <laughs> didn't have a reasonable chance of success. Yeah. And so this is a really interesting like a love letter that's written in Russian but is taken from German is an interesting representation of Herman's, like, what is happening in Herman's head right now. Yeah. Um, I'd also say that this might be, at least for me, because it's not clear at this point on which side Herman falls, whether or not he's interested in Lisaveta or whether or not he's still interested in the cards. And right. so this was like, for me, when I read this, I was like, 
is that like a little inauthentic? I don't, I didn't know the customs of the time, but for me, it felt like it's a bug. It felt like (laughs) it was perhaps the first indication that like he might be sort of doing a lazy seduction, but what he's really after is the cards. Right, right. And it does say, it says, nevertheless, the letter made her feel extremely uneasy. For the first time in her life, she was entering into a secret and confidential relationship with a young man. His audacity shocked her. Uh, So, yeah, so she rebuffs him and sends him another letter saying, you know, you can't send me letters like these. It's inappropriate. Don't do that. And then receives an, three days later <laughs> another letter and Wait, i want to what tell this what part. can i tell this part this is my favorite part yeah you can tell this part okay. okay oh okay okay um well she so she receives another letter in a couple of days that's delivered to her by a young woman and lisa bed opens like it a, and it's like a little girl isn't it yeah Anyway, a bright-eyed um, young girl. A bright-eyed young girl, and uh, she thinks at first that it's like a like a bill, but because uh, she runs the household, right? But then right. it's not. <laughs> she immediately recognizes Hermit's handwriting, and she's like, "You've made a mistake. This is not for me. This is not for me. You've made a mistake." And the girl is kind of cheeky, and she's like, "Oh, but it is. Like, uh, you should read it. It's from Herman. It is from Herman. It's a request to." meet but lisa vetta is so freaked out by this that she's like no it's not me and then she rips it up in a very theatrical sort of way and then i love this and then the little girl is like well if it wasn't for you why did you just tear it up like i would have returned it to the person who sent it (laughs) which is just that you know pushkin's like humor and like fun of this like theatrical reaction this like theatrical trope all right that's That's so true yeah and then and lisavetta doesn't even acknowledge that the girl said that she's just like please my dear flushing at the remark don't bring me any more letters in the future (laughs) and tell the person who sent you that he should be ashamed of it i i also find this so interesting because the side characters in this story i think upon this reading became like really important to me like it's Mm -hmm. really weird because the girl seems to know that something is up like the way that she says you know she says oh this letter's not for me and the girl says oh but it is and she's kind and it says the girl answered cheekily and without concealing a sly smile read it so it's like this little girl who has nothing you don't see again it's not like she's a part of the plot but she she knows something she's She's, it's like she's slightly more involved than a mere side character should be. And I feel yeah. like this is something that's recur, that's a recurring thing in this story that we'll keep an eye on. And I, I do have thoughts about it that we can go to later. Because also the Count St. Germain, you know, yeah. even his knowledge of the cards is this sort of omniscience that there's like the people who are in the story who are experiencing it as it is unfolding and then these weird side characters who seem to have more knowledge you know right and saint germain is not even in it at all 
like after, he's yeah after that first he's, story and he's just within the story in a story he never makes mm-hmm. an appearance in the timeline of this this story so she even though she rips up that letter the the letters keep coming herman is mm-hmm. is uh you know persistent and they begin to seduce Lizaveta, and the letters were no longer translated from Ger- the German. Herman wrote them inspired by passion and used a language true to his character. These letters were the expression of his obsessive desires and the disorder of his unfettered imagination. Lizaveta no longer thought of returning them to him. She reveled in them began to answer them, and with each day his replies became longer and more tender. So here, I mean, you know, you had that moment of, like, the letter taken from the German novel, which makes you think, oh, is he just using her? But then you have this where you're like, oh, is he fall? Is he really falling for is he her? falling for her? I was still suspicious. I was like, is this the passion for Lisa sure. or the passion for the secret? Um, right. But right. carry on. So then they decide to uh, arrange to meet. And Lizaveta tells him that he can sneak into the house while she and the countess are at a ball. And he can hide there until she comes back. And then they can see each other. So this is when the action really hits up. Really hits up. So Herman, Herman arrives at the house ready to follow the instructions. And the first line is that Herman quivered like a tiger. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, excuse me. Wow, that was a this was a big gurgling laugh. <laughs> gotcha. Um, yeah, and I and this was I this scene is so cool because this is a it's yeah. so atmospheric. I yeah. feel like I can you can just see it like it feels like a movie when you hear when you read it so it says the weather was terrible the wind howled and a wet snow fell in large flakes upon the deserted streets where lamps shone dimly occasionally a passing cab driver leaned forward over his scrawny nag on the lookout for a late passenger feeling neither wind nor snow herman waited dressed only in his frock coat so I just feel like that's just such a vivid scene setting for this kind of like the midpoint height of the story. Yeah. I just wanted to take a moment to, and then I'll, I'll, I promise I'll let you like go on and, and move on with the story. But do you remember when dad was like really into Jane Austen? Um, yes. Yeah. Well, one of the things that he brought up that we ended up talking about pretty extensively was that, you know, they're writing for their own time period. They are contemporary authors. Like, this feels to us, you know, like such a period piece. But for him, watching carriages in the rain in your frock and your cloaks was like a a real experience. So I'm just wondering if that perhaps add to how vivid this scene is. Yeah, Um, right. That's true. So Herman, he walks up to the deserted house. He makes his way inside. I feel like this part has so many elements of like the house, the uncanny house, right? Mm -hmm. He's entering into a space that he is not supposed to be in. And he's seeing an internal world that he is not supposed to be privy to. And so he goes in 
to the through these rooms that are kind of like half in darkness and there's all these old-fashioned images there's like mm-hmm. this glowing gold sanctuary lamp there are these faded brocade armchairs and divans and cushions and and these old portraits of people and it says like there are these little porcelain shepherdesses and table clocks and he's making all these these are all like kind of references to the world of 1770s france it makes reference to like montgolfier's balloon like air balloons and mesmer's magnetism and he goes behind this screen where there stood a small iron bedstead on the right was a door leading to the study on the left the one which led to the corridor and so this is the moment where he can either choose to stay where he knows the countess is going to end up or go on up to Lizaveta's room and it says he opened the door he opened the door to the corridor and saw the narrow winding staircase which led up to the poor ward's room but he turned back and stepped into the dark study yes so this is his choice right Mm -hmm. this is when it's clear that or at least at this point you know it maybe it's not like maybe his decisions were actually ambiguous up until this point where he hadn't decided you know whether or not he was motivated by Lisabetta or the cards but this is when he makes his decision right Um, right and and I find that really fascinating because it it is true it's like you you definitely think it might be a little bit ambiguous, but up until that point, I'm kind of like, all right, he's he is using her to get to yeah. the cards. Like, I am fully on board with that. Like, the fake German letter, it's like, he's going to throw her over if he gets a chance at these cards. But this moment, when he opens the door, like, he opens the door uh-huh. that leads to, to her room. So he considers it. There is some, there, there's a surprising pull of it there that, that I think is really interesting. Yeah. True. But obviously he doesn't decide to do that uh, because <laughs> this, is, this is the story of his ruin. And he stays in the study. And so he's, you know, he's waiting and it's this very kind of spooky ambiance. It says the clock in the drawing room struck 12. One by one, the clocks in all the other rooms sounded the same hour and then all was quiet again. So it's even like he's made his choice right before the stroke of midnight. And then the countess arrives back and he's hiding and he's kind of watching her her maids help her undress and getting into her night clothes, which is like mm-hmm, creepy. Okay. And then she sits down in a chair and he, she kind of seems to be maybe like drifting off into some kind of stupor. And then Herman leaps from his hiding place and demands that she tell him the the three cards and he makes all these arguments and she's kind of like really taken aback but she's not really saying anything until finally she says it was a joke it was all a joke 
And he says, there's no joking about it. He's like, you just, you have to tell me the name of these. You have to tell me the three names of the cards. And he makes this like really bizarre argument. He's like, who are you? Why are you not telling it uh, to keep the secret from your grandsons? But they're rich and they can do without it. I'm the one who needs it. I know the value of money. Your three cards will not be lost on me. And when that doesn't work and she's still silent, he says, if your heart has ever known the feeling of love, he said, if you remember its ecstasies, if you ever smiled at the wailing of your newborn son, or ever any human feeling has run through your breast, I entreat you by the feelings of a wife, a lover, a mother, by everything that is sacred in life, not to deny my request. Reveal your secret to me. And that is just the weirdest argument, I think. Yes. I, there's there's so much in that. And he's like, if there's some kind of sin involved, maybe you've made a contract with the devil, consider you are old and you have not long to live. I am prepared to take your sins on my own soul. And when she still yet says nothing, he stood up and he says, you old witch, I'll force you to answer. And he takes a pistol from his pocket. And at the sight of the pistol, the countess uh, exhibits strong signs of emotion. And she lifts her hand as if to shield herself from the shot. But then she rolls over on her back and remains motionless. And it turns out that she has died of shock or something. Yeah. So this, I, I just want to sit in that. Yeah, this is a really cool scene. <laughs> That's all I have to say. It is. It is. There's, there is so much in this scene. I remember this scene being, this feels like the moment in the story when something is being left behind some semblance of like adherence to reality is gone even though nothing has really changed it's gone Mm -hmm. and part of that for me is is herman entering into this world like kind of this other world of the house and then seeing the the countess who we up until now have known as this very demanding loud but pretty with it old woman and in this scene suddenly she's like it's like she's almost dead already Mm -hmm. you know yeah well she feels very vulnerable for sure like even watching her undress and she's in just her nightgown in like this half asleep stupor right and and she's even it describes she's sort of rocking to and fro in her chair her flabby lips moving her dim eyes reflected a complete absence of thought and looking at her one would have thought that the awful old woman's rocking came not of her own volition but by the action of some hidden galvanism Mm -hmm. it's like she's like she's barely in grasp of her own behaviors in -hmm. this moment and that feels like a foreshadowing to what later happens but also it's this feeling that she is being controlled by something else Mm -hmm. yeah and if we do want to just take a take a hit at deconstructing this plea he has yeah right yeah like this is fascinating and it does like when he's talking about uh, appealing to her sense of like motherhood and love that is certainly 
telling of his relationship with money he he views this as uh, like he believes that his love of money that his need for this card is like an act of love (laughs) yeah tantamount to the love of a mother with a child (laughs) and i mean i mean we've also been told that that he has a sum of money that was left to him by his father who we don't know who that is, that he refuses to touch, mm-hmm. right? He won't access that money. He's only living off of his, uh, what he's making from, from his officer income. And then now, yeah, he's drawing a direct tie between getting this money or from these cards to the feelings of a wife, a lover, a mother, Oh, there's Uh, also probably something Freudian in here. Oh, there fully is. There fully is. His appeal to the mother, even like thinking about seducing her versus his like coldness with his father. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, like that's, we can come back to that. I get, we can come back to this idea that like, that there is something very Freudian about this situation. I think more will become clear as we go through the story. But I mean, I will say he has situated her in every in every feminine archetype at this point almost. Like mm-hmm. he calls her first, you know, he's he's putting her as the yeah. mother with a newborn son, wife, lover, and then right after that when she refuses his request, she calls witch. her he calls her you old witch. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And so yeah, so I'll continue with what's happening. So now we return to Lizaveta, who is has been waiting in her room in her ball gown, which like, what a what a vibe, um, <laughs> vibin', 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 waiting in her room, like sitting at her window in her ball gown, waiting for her mysterious Love lover, Love and uh, she's both kind of she's both disappointed but also relieved that he hasn't shown yeah. up, and and she's remembering back at the ball that she was just at where she had this really <laughs> unnerving interaction with Tomsky where uh, so basically we already know that all the, the young men like to sometimes dance with Lizaveta in order to make the rich women jealous and so Tomsky has had this flirtation with Princess Paulina who is not flirting with him as much as he wants her to so he he takes up Lizaveta Ivanovna and he already knows that she has some interest in an engineer. And so he's kind of like, he's kind of like making little jabs at her for it. And I, reading this, I, I always kind of thought this was just, oh, kind of a silly conversation. This time reading it, though, I was like, wait, what is happening here? Yeah, this is another like side character omniscience. Um, exactly. It's very weird. Very so, weird. so he says... Let's see. He teased her about her partiality to officers of the engineers, had assured her that he knew far more than she would have supposed possible. And indeed, some of his jests were so successfully aimed that on several occasions, Lizaveta Ivanovna had thought that her secret was known to him. From whom have you discovered all this? She asked, laughing. From a friend of the person whom you know so well, Tomsky answered. From a most remarkable man. Who is this remarkable man? He is called Herman. And it says Lizaveta made no reply, but her hands and feet turned quite numb. So that's already interesting because Tomsky 
is saying that he heard this from a friend of Lizaveta's lover. Yeah. And that that friend is Herman. Yeah, that's weird. So that's weird. So Tomsky says, this Herman is a truly romantic figure. He has the profile of a Napoleon and the soul of a Mephistopheles. I should think he has had at least three crimes on his conscience. And, you know, she says, well, what what did this Herman or whatever his name is tell you? And he says, Herman is most displeased with his friend. He says that he would act quite differently in his place. I even think that Herman himself has designs on you. At any rate, he listens to the exclamations of his enamored friend with anything but indifference. So at this point, you're like, who is this other person? Who is Tomsky talking about? Yeah, and then, you know, Princess Paulina comes up and claims Tomsky to have a dance with him, and she is just disturbed by this conversation and doesn't know what to make of it. And and then, you know, so she's sitting in her room, and Herman enters her room, and she shudders and says, where have you been? And he says, in the old countess's room, I have just left it. The countess is dead. And, you know, she's horrified by it. She is just crying and and he looks at her in silence but his heart was also tormented but but not because of her crying or because of the death of the old lady (laughs) he's only upset at the irretrievable loss of the secret upon which he had relied for enrichment she says you are a monster and he says i did not wish for her death my pistol wasn't loaded which feels significant. She tells him how to get out of the house via a secret staircase, and he leaves. Yeah, and he has an interesting little moment when he leaves. He again recalls the older time, the 70s, and he's imagining a, a you know a similar gentleman come to woo a young countess and then escaping down the stairwell. Right. Yeah, I'm not, that doesn't yeah. have to go anywhere. It was just an observation. No, I mean it's it feels very relevant again. Yeah, I mean, and that he he felt no he felt no remorse at her death, and yet he's still like even though all he cares about is the money, is the secret, he still compares himself to a lover. A lover. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So Herman. <laughs> Herman decides to go to the Countess's funeral because he's superstitious. Of course he does. Of course he does. Of course he does. He's superstitious, though he's not religious. Um, Oh, there's a great epigraph for this chapter. It says, That evening there appeared before me the figure of the late Baroness von V. She was all in white, and she said to me, How are you, Mr. Counselor? (laughs) Which is really funny so he goes to the funeral and he he goes up to her corpse and becomes startled when he thinks he sees the corpse wink at him and people are like helping him up and helping him leave and and someone in the crowd remarks that he is her illegitimate son this is so weird to me and it's never returned to no and it's just tossed out there by a random guy. Yeah, but again, that Freudian, that now we have a direct tie to her being like a mother and a lover figure to him. Okay, right. Continue, continue, right. Continue. 
so he goes home and that night the ghost of the countess comes to him and I, this is this is one of my favorite scenes. He's so disturbed by seeing the count, the dead countess wink at him that he goes to an inn and he gets really drunk and uh, and then he goes home and he falls asleep and he falls into this heavy sleep. And when it's nighttime when he wakes up, the moon is lighting his room and it's a quarter to three. He can't go back to sleep and he's thinking about the funeral. And at that moment, somebody in the street glances in at his window and immediately goes away and herman's like okay whatever and then a few minutes later he hears unfamiliar footsteps and a soft shuffling of slippers the door opened a woman in a white dress entered herman mistook her for his old wet nurse and wondered what could have brought her out at that time of night but the woman in white glided across the room and suddenly appeared before him uh, and he recognizes her as the countess. And she tells him, I have come to you against my will. But I have to f fulfill your request. The cards are three, seven, ace played in that order. And you can only play one every 24 hours. And then you must never play again for the rest of your life. And I'll forgive you my death if you marry Lizaveta. And then... And then she turns around and walks toward the door, her slippers shuffling, and he hears the door in the hall bang, and then again saw somebody look in at him through the window. Yes, but this, that's very creepy. And it's like, is it the ghost who's looking in, or is it another one of these bystanders? Or, who is uh, it? Who is yeah. it? This is, this, this struck me as like, so... I was literally telling this story when I first read it. I was telling the plot of this story to anyone who would listen. Because <laughs> this moment struck me so much as so bizarre that that this interaction with the Countess is bracketed by, quote-unquote, somebody looking in at him. And even after you know that it's the Countess, it's not her looking at the, in at the window. Yes. It, the it sec, wasn't like, her. It wasn't her. And... That fucking spooked the shit out of me, I'll just say. So I just have to say. I was I'll just spooked put shit that out there. <laughs> so let me just finish up the let me finish our uh, description yeah, this... and then and then we can we can dig into this a little more. So he now has the cards. The beginning of chapter six, there's this amazing line that begins Two fixed ideas can no more exist in one mind than in the physical sense, two bodies can occupy one and the same place. And that just feels very Parisian to me, and I can come back to that. So Herman's mind is, you know, fully occupied by these three cars. He's like, three, seven, ace. He's seeing it everywhere. He's seeing it at the sight of a young girl. And he would say, how shapely she is, just like the three of hearts. <laughs> and then he's also seeing it in his dreams. And this is some significant imagery i think is that he sees the three bloom before him in the shape of a luxuriant flower the seven took on the appearance mm -hmm. of a gothic gateway and the ace that of an enormous spider and so Ooh, he true. finally decides yeah yeah <laughs> he finally decides to act on it he narumov the friend who 
was, you know, at the beginning the host, hosting that card party, brings him to a gambling house where there's another kind of the gambler, the the head of the gambling house is this kind of odd man. He wins with the first card and everyone's like, oh my God, oh my God, he won. And then on the second night he returns and he wins with the seven again and he's like, doubled his money and he's put all of his money into it all of his savings on the third night he plays again and he's like all right i've won with the ace and the gambling head guy says actually you didn't that that's not an ace and instead of an ace it's the queen of spades and he looks down at the card (laughs) and she gives him a little wink (laughs) and he's like Oh my god! (laughs) And we get this really brief conclusion where we hear that Herman went mad. So he's now, you know, in a mental hospital. He doesn't say anything except muttering three seven ace, three seven queen. Uh and then we that's all that's all about Herman. That's the end of Herman. Lizaveta Ivanovna has married a very agreeable young man who is the son of the former steward of the old countess. And she's bringing up a poor relative. And then the last note of the story is for some reason about Tomsky. How he was promoted to the rank of captain and is going to marry Princess Paulina. How fun for Tomsky. You're just like, that's great. Tomsky just lives a a fully carefree life all the way through. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yeah, so that's the end of the, the story. And I have... I have lots of lots of ideas. <laughs> all right. All right, all right, all right. All right, all right. Okay. So final discussion. Yeah. Take us away, Kat. Um, so a few points that, like, just stick out to me the most. For one thing, as I said before, who the fuck is it who's looking at him through the window? Yeah, that's weird. So for me, so when I first read this story, I was like really obsessed with it. I think it's so interesting the way that it's seems like it's a very straightforward story. As you say, it's not that creepy. It's not like spooky in the same way that the that the Sandman really kind of like undoes your feelings of security. I don't mm-hmm. think that on the surface Queen of Spades does that in the same way, but once I was thinking about it, the real kicker for me was actually going to this question of when I was discussing it in class, my teacher was talking about the symbolism within uh, Herman's dream. Right. And she was like, oh, the, you know, you have the flower and the gateway. Those feel like they make sense. You know, those are kind of positive symbols. Gateway maybe meaning, you know, he's like entering into a new life if he can get all this money. Yeah. But the spider... I mean, for all that it's negative and it's foreshadowing the eventual downfall of that card, of that card betraying him, why is it a spider? Yeah. And I was really stuck on that. And I was like, I remember like laying laying in bed awake thinking about it and having this momentous realization that I was like, spiders, what what does the spider mean? What do spiders do? Spiders weave webs. 
spiders weave webs and i was like i was like in a kind of a crazy state just being like spiders weave webs spiders weave webs <laughs> and um but for me that was so i i just wasn't able to stop thinking about that because spiders weave webs and they trap things <laughs> yeah in their webs and yeah. and it makes i mean what it does beyond like oh it's like it's like herman is trapped by someone you know when that thing when someone looks in at the window it's as if they want to check that he is in the right state to receive the ghost and then the ghost gets shuffled out onto the stage and she feels literally corporeal you know she feels physical she doesn't just appear and she's not floating she has none of the normal kind of accoutrements of ghostliness Instead, she's shuffling out. She's banging the door on her way out. Like, she just, it feels like she's like a marionette or something. Mm. And then whatever is looking in at the window the second time, which is not the countess, is looking to make sure that the right impact has been felt and that Herman is falling into the trap of the web oh interesting yeah well when i i mean when i read that i guess i also was thinking with the spiders that the spider is like a female archetype you know we think back to arachne and Mm -hmm. uh, arachne's like uh, avarice and pride and in you know challenging the gods but also like spiders eating their mates so there's definitely some sort of female predatory yeah. like aspect of the spider. Right, right. I mean, it makes me think like Coraline, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spider, the spider mother. Yes. Uh, who wants to keep her there forever. And then, so when I told people this plot line, as I did over and over and over again, trying to come to some kind of understanding of it, when I asked people what they who they thought was looking in the window several people said well is it himself (laughs) is it herman yes yes and i think that's i think that's pretty sound (laughs) you know it's so funny i feel like we've had many moments in the last like several episodes just like always maybe where we're like but it's actually himself. himself. <laughs> you know, like that's also the Sandman, you know, and Nathaniel <laughs> looking back at himself. That's so true, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it was so distinct to me this time around because the, literally the first, the first sentence of chapter six is this, this line, two fixed ideas can no more exist in one mind than in a physical sense two bodies yes can occupy one in the same place and that follows right off of the scene of the ghost yes and that's all it's all that doubling you know herman Mm -hmm. in the room and in the window herman and herman's friend and herman's Um, mysterious friend yeah right uh i i i didn't realize also the first time reading this story how how spooky that conversation with Tomsky mm-hmm. was. The way he's saying, like, 
he's like oh like Herman doesn't approve of his friend but Herman I think is also in love with you for me also the sense of the spider really broke the story open for me as like as like giving it a whole different level like you have all of the events going on of Mm -hmm. the characters and then with this imagery of the spider and someone pulling the strings behind the scenes all these other weird things start to fall into place like all of these side characters being somehow omniscient or knowing what's going on and Mm -hmm. pushing the other characters forward somehow and and the countess at first like when with herman's first encounter with her the way she seems galvanized by some invisible force right and then later that's literally played out in the fact that it's like her dead body is being used as like a puppet by Mm -hmm. something by someone and then prior to that, even just these moments where Elisabetta or Herman, it says that they, you know, they feel a sense of uneasiness or they feel a strangeness, but then they're moved to go do something by a force that seems outside of themselves. And so it's like adding this whole other layer of the story on in this some kind of figure that is that is pushing them and pulling them and manipulating their motivations. Yeah. So anyway, that's my, that's my, those are my yeah. notes on that. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And then the next question, <laughs> the question of, of love versus greed. Yes, 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 yes. Do you have any, do you have a thought on this? Well, I mean, I don't have, I don't think that this is what you're going to be talking about. So I'll say this now and then we can get in more. I don't have anything like super specific. I was just kind of going to start talking Um, and see where I am to see where I end up. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, it is interesting to me that like Tomsky has this dual love affair going on with Princess Paulina, right? And he gets the last word of the story. So, Mm -hmm. and I mean, for me, I'm not really into like, you know, the kill the author philosophy I am very interested in like cultural and period (laughs) context so like knowing that uh, Pushkin was interested in like social and class dynamics the fact that Tomsky can have this relationship sort of unpolluted by wealth or greed is because he already has it whereas Herman like it's you know, inextricably linked for him because he doesn't have it. And he has like these dual fantasies of being wealthy and being with Lisa that, you know, that he can't extricate in his mind. Is that the word? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. So I, I have this paper. I, um, it's called, it's a, a psychoanalytic interpretation of the Queen of Spades by Murray Schwartz and Albert Schwartz. This was published oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In, a while ago. But uh, to take a few quotes from that paper, what they say is, it is not his gambling that precipitates Herman's madness, nor is it his reliance on dreams or prayers or supplications, but rather his very real incapacity to gamble, to risk, to love oh okay okay and i thought that was pretty palpable 
Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Because that is the connection between the gambling mm-hmm. and the love. And here you have, yeah, your counter character with Tomsky, who is this wealthy man who who can do both of those with complete freedom. Mm-hmm. Whereas Herman ha- has to be locked down in both. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. I'm not sure if I can say that better. <laughs> I know, right? And it says, like, so be- him being a Russified German and being both a stranger and being familiar. So he's outside of the gaming, yet he ha- is an avid, vicarious participant. This is still from the paper again. Yeah. It says, Her- Herman is a player in fantasy. As long as he maintains the boundary between independent calculation, or his German side, and fantasized abandonment to the game of chance, like his Russian brothers, like Tomsky, he is safe, yet split. To be a watcher is to exercise inner control over action, but simultaneously to abandon that control over fantasy. Herman's obsession with wealth is a means toward manhood. And therefore, because of that, he, he can't access manhood through love. Yeah. He set himself up so he can only access it through, through riches. And so he's like reaching for this need for nourishment, for like romance or motherly love. Like he's mistaking the ghost of the countess for his old wet nurse. Yeah, weird detail. Weird (laughs) detail. The countess is like maybe his mother. And yet he's just fully blocked. He has this full incapability of real love, which makes him impotent in the face of real love like perhaps with Lizaveta and you know I think that's kind of symbolized by when he castration castration complex (laughs) oh no my penis sorry okay Uh, (laughs) um I think that's really symbolized by him pulling the gun on the yes countess and then later saying that it was unloaded like that is his his impotence. <laughs> um, You're yeah. right. Impotence isn't quite the same as castration. I just I just kind of wanted to yell castration. Like <laughs> I just wanted to I just wanted to yell. Ca- you know, you as know, you do. You know, everyone gets better as you do sometimes. <laughs> and his like his identity as like this this Napoleonic character. Yes, is very. It's like great. I mean, it's just like. It's a good symbol. I mean, Napoleon being this person who started off coming up in the revolution, in the breakdown of royalty and of, like, the aristocracy, who then comes to power and later just gives himself the title of Emperor of France, you know? And who's just, he is the symbol of unbridled ambition that later leads to his own destruction and you know it's so like i was reading a little bit about about napoleon before this 
and how he crowns himself emperor of France. He begins restoring the French aristocracy and handing out titles of nobility to his friends and family, indicating maybe that he always kind of wanted to be a part of aristocracy Mm -hmm. in the same way that like Herman is always, he's deeply attracted to it. He's deeply interested in opulence and wealth and yet cannot access it. So that's uh, that's what I got. That's no, I think that's great. That's great. That's great. That was great. <laughs> good, um, job. good job. Good job. Good job. What's that? Good job today. Um. Okay. All right. All right. Uh, I just keep surprising myself. <laughs> Hello, this is Kat, and I hope y'all enjoyed the show, and if you feel like it, it would be very most helpful if you would leave us a little rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, that's super important for new podcasts, and maybe if you have a friend interested in listening to two pretentious faux intellectuals talk passionately about the castration complex for way too long because it always comes back to that castration complex doesn't it uh maybe consider sharing this podcast with that friend uh if you have any questions or comments you can email us at credo.kia.absurdum.podcast at gmail.com or find us on instagram where our handle is at cqa pod Uh, So thanks for listening, and I hope you're having a great day.